let's read the, the words of the psalm at the end of chapter 11 again. Page 1139 in the Church Bible. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. been turning to this uh, wonderful piece of literature uh, for some bedtime reading. Uh, it's entitled Electric Fencing for Livestock. You know, it's possibly a, a, a pick for the, the book club, maybe in, in uh, a few weeks' time. Good reading. And one of the standout uh, comments from uh, this book, Electric Fencing for Livestock, is that electric fencing requires a complete change of mindset. Electric fencing requires a complete change of life, of, of mindset. You know, if you're conventional fencing, your posts are, need to be near. Electric fencing, no, they've got to be far apart. Electric fencing requires a complete change of mindset. Uh, there was a complete change of mindset in a more significant way in the 16th century. Uh, Copernicus, the astronomer, uh, discovered that rather than the sun going around the earth, as it seemed to, because it seems that the sun rises in the morning and it goes down at night. So everybody thought that the sun went round the earth. No, Copernicus said, the earth actually goes round the sun. It's the earth that's moving. The sun uh, is the centre of, of our solar system. And we speak about a Copernican revolution because it, like electric fencing, required a complete change of mindset. And... It's the same with being a Christian. We, we undergo a complete change of mindset. We begin to look at the world around us and chiefly we begin to look at God from an entirely different perspective. At one time, you thought that the world revolved around you. Yeah? You never said that because that sounds a bit proud and complacent. But really... That is the way it seemed, that everybody around you, and God in particular, had a duty of care to you to ensure that you were happy and that you never uh, bump up against any obstacles. But the gospel reveals that actually uh, it's not all about you. The universe does not revolve around you, but actually the universe was made by God and revolves around God. So there is a complete mindset change involved in Christianity. One of the, the statements from the Christianity Explored in week two that, that struck some of the participants at it was uh, a definition of sin, one of these freshly minted expressions of what sin is. And Ricketise said that sin is living in God's world whilst ignoring God. Which is another way of saying you lived in God's, you lived in God's world and thought that you and not God was the centre of everything. And the Christian life begins with that revolutionary understanding of the fact that God is great and I'm not. Has that penetrated your mind? God is great and you're not great. 
you're actually very small and sinful and finite. And growing in the Christian life is allowing that mindset change to affect life change, to change our behavior. God is actually the center. And our purpose in life is aligning ourselves with God and his purposes. We're going to focus our minds this morning on the surpassing greatness of God. And that's an extremely healthy and purposeful activity for for Christians. Uh, John Piper wrote a book which was actually based on the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. And it's entitled The Supremacy of God in Preaching. And in it he comments on a time when... The, uh, he was preaching on Isaiah 6 and unusually he, he didn't have an application in the sermon. It was simply uh, a sermon which extolled the greatness of God unpacking Isaiah's vision in the temple of the holiness of God. And a number of weeks later he had uh, a letter from uh, somebody that was there in the service he didn't realise would be there. Uh, it turned out that Uh, their child was being sexually abused by a close relative. And they were there that Sunday and heard the message. And the husband said, John, these have been the hardest months of our lives. And do you know what has got me through? The vision of the greatness of God's holiness that you gave me that first week in January has been the rock we could stand on. And Piper concludes, the greatness and glory of God are relevant. It does not matter if surveys turn up a list of perceived needs. It does not include the supreme greatness of the sovereign God of grace. That is the deepest need. Our people are starving for God. And these verses at the end of of Romans chapter 11, this doxology, they're a, a flight, a soaring flight into the, the greatness of God. In particular, his, his wisdom and the incomprehensibility of his ways. And the effect of the verse is to magnify great, to make God uh, be seen as he truly is, as great, and to humble us, to make us see ourselves as we truly are, not great. And it's as though um, Paul has been sitting down after uh, exerting himself, scaling this mighty mountain. And looking around him, he is moved to burst into praise. It's not clear if the mountain, use that expression, is the whole of Romans up to this point, in Romans 1 to 11. Uh, certainly chapter 12 is a change of, of mood. It becomes more applicatory. Uh, and so it could be that he's reflecting on the whole of Romans. I think it's more likely that he's actually reflecting on 9 to 11, because 9 to 11 has all been about uh, God's purposes with the Jews and the Gentiles and the, the amazing way that could only be understood by revelation that God has been uh, bringing in the Gentiles uh, through the disobedience of the Jews. 
And then his promise that uh, the, the joy, the gospel joy of the Gentiles will result in uh, the Jews being provoked to envy and they will someday in the future turn to Jesus and that will bring uh, a fullness of joy to the earth through the ingathering of Israel along with the Gentiles. This is a mystery uh, that has been revealed and it surpasses anything that human understanding could come up with. But of course it equally could be said about some of the doctrines that have gone on in the beginning of Romans. Think of the, the, the doctrine of how we are justified, uh, made right with God by trusting in Jesus. Uh, the wisdom of God in that. Uh, the dilemma of God, if you like, is how can, uh, how can God be just and merciful? If God is, is going to be merciful and forgive people, uh, does that not mean that, that the moral government of the, the universe is, is abandoned? If God simply overlooks sin? But on the other hand, uh, if, if God upholds his justice, uh, does that mean that everyone is going to be condemned to, to everlasting uh, judgment upon their sin? And God's mercy is not revealed? How, how, can, that, how can that be? How can uh, this be brought together and the cross brings it together in a way that could never have been anticipated because God shows his justice on the cross through Jesus bearing the judgment and he shows his mercy through Jesus taking our place and giving his righteousness to sinners the wisdom of God in salvation so Paul erupts into a song of Praise And this doxology, uh, you can't really read it with, without uh, breaking into almost sing-song as, as you recite it. And to analyse uh, a piece like this in the Bible almost seems to do it an injustice. How can you uh, break it down, as it were? And yet, we're preachers and we like three and four points, so we do that. And essentially what, what is being said in the doxology uh, is that uh, you are not great and can't fathom God's greatness that you uh, God does not need your advice because his wisdom is profound God doesn't owe you anything but on the other hand you owe him all glory so first then God is too great for you to comprehend Paul breaks out all oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out depths of the wisdom, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Knowledge really comes uh, first uh, in a sense. Knowledge uh, is God's uh, his, uh, understanding, his awareness of all things. And it's different from our knowledge. It's not just that God knows everything. He knows them in a different way. God knows things immediately and intuitively, uh, whereas we know things derivatively. Now, that sounds technical, I suppose, but what we mean is that when we have knowledge of anything, it's a little bit like uh, the way a botanist understands the makeup of a flower. He will peel back the petals, he will examine uh, underneath the outward uh, coats, as it were, of the, of the, of the plant. Or an engineer understands uh, how a motor works. Uh, he strips down the engine, takes things apart to investigate the inner workings. So our knowledge moves from uh, 
the external, the superficial that we understand to the bits below that we don't get. And God, by contrast, knows immediately. He penetrates to the very heart of the matter immediately. He knows instantly and effortlessly all matters, all mind, all spirit, all beings. He knows all thoughts. He knows all causes. He knows all mysteries. He knows all the motives that we have for doing things. He understands you right now. He knows what's going on in your thoughts. He knows where your thoughts are right now. He knows what your heart is like, whether you're right with God. He knows your thoughts before you have them and your words before you speak them. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 139. He knows you when you are being formed in your mother's womb. He knows the exact number of your days when you will die. Paul speaks of the depth of the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge. The psalmist speaks of the height. It's both too deep to explore, it's too high to uh, get over. Such knowledge, he says in Psalm 139, is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Now, God's knowledge, God's knowledge of you, if you're not a believer, is actually a very unsettling thing because we don't like to think that we are, are as it were, naked before others. Uh, we're like Adam. When Adam sinned, first thing Adam does is to go and flee from God. And he goes into the, the groves of Eden and he, he hides there from God. But God comes a seeking because the folly of it. Imagine, imagine trying to hide behind some bushes and think that God can't see you. I mean, when we, when we read that, it's really just stupid. But that's the way that we are too. Oh, we think God doesn't know me. God doesn't, God doesn't know what I'm up to. And then we realize, well, actually, he does. And that's unnerving. So long as we're not right with God. But when we are believers, when we're trusting Jesus, when we know that we, are, we have had our sins forgiven, then the fact that God knows all about me is actually a great comfort. Because it now tells me that God knows the very worst about me. And yet he still loves me. That's a huge comfort. God's wisdom is even greater than his knowledge. Uh, wisdom is to do with God's plans and purposes. There's a great quote from a great book, uh, J.L. Packer's Knowing God, this book we all should get hold of and read. And here's a good quote on what God's wisdom is. God's wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. That's God's wisdom. Now, as soon as you hear a definition like that of God's wisdom, you see how our wisdom, such as it is, is so, so very different from that. I mean, our, our plans, even when they're for the best, they misfire so often because we, well, we simply don't know uh, the full facts of the matter. And sometimes there are these unforeseen uh, outcomes. Things go badly wrong even with the best intentions. Someone throws a, a parents throw a, a party for their, their daughter, with all the best intentions in the world. And unbeknown to them, she's just broken up with her boyfriend and he gets invited and the whole evening is so, so awkward. Because they didn't know. They weren't party to all the facts. 
Uh, so even although they wanted to act wisely, they acted up in a ruinous way. But God knows all facts. And God's desire is always towards what is good, what is best. Again, the difference with us. Because we're not always inclined to what is good or what is best. So often our motivation is selfish or thoughtless. But God's wisdom means that he has the best plans in view and he can fulfill his purposes because he is powerful in the best of all ways. Such is his wisdom. But Paul's point here is to, make, to say that God is so vastly greater than us that we cannot comprehend his ways. Another big word alert. Incomprehensibility. Uh, God is incomprehensible. Which means that we cannot comprehend him. Sometimes think of, of comprehending something as, as embracing it or, or surrounding it, circumscribing it. What it means is you can know God. To be a, a Christian is to know God through Jesus Christ. But you'll never fathom God. You'll never be able to say, now I understand all about God. Uh, as though you had surrounded him or encircled him by your knowledge. You cannot do that. And if you could, God would not be God. Because he is so much vaster than us. It's just inconceivable that we could understand all about him. And so incomprehensibility is actually a, a characteristic. And we use it of uh, our own behaviour as a negative thing. It means that someone's not communicating very well. If someone was to say uh, to me, you know, your sermons are so incomprehensible. I wouldn't take that as a compliment because they're not meant to be incomprehensible. They're meant to be understandable. But when we say that God is incomprehensible, what we're saying is God is so great that we can't possibly, no matter how great our intellect or how godly we are, we cannot get right round his nature. And so it is a wonderful attribute of him. And so Paul cries out how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. The word unsearchable come, is, a, is a translation of a Greek word that has, uh, comes from the root of the word to examine. So uh, it's saying that God's judgments are are simply not up for our examination. They are beyond our marking them. And it's the same with uh, his ways. The, the word uh, for tracing out has got a connection with the word footprint. You know, if you've got uh, somebody's walking along the, in the sand, they leave footprints in the sand. And you can, you can track where they've been and where they ended up going so that, you know, you've got their their journey figured out. But God is not like that. His paths do not leave footprints which allow us to tie everything up like that. God's judgments and his ways or his decisions and his ways with men and women. That's speaking about the eternal decree of God. The decisions that God makes in providence as he rules all of his creatures, at his decisions that he makes about 
are pardoning individuals and, and choosing some and passing over others and leaving them to judgment. Take the situation with the Jews that's just been spoken with. Uh, mixed up in God's dealings with the Jews are mercy and judgment. God will have glory from either and both. God is glorified in the judgment of sinners. God is glorified in giving mercy to sinners. And he is king and therefore uh, he is not uh, obliged to show mercy to anybody. But he does. And the Jews are judged for rejecting the Messiah. And the consequence of this is mercy for the Gentiles who were brought in in these early centuries. And then Gentile joy will lead to turning the Jews to Jesus. And increased blessing. And all of this is the work of trillions and trillions of individual acts of God's providence. You know, bringing people into contact with the gospel. Uh, these kind of detailed events that God is ruler over in our lives. That brings in his chosen to the kingdom of God. And then the, the big events on the, the world stage. Mass migrations of people, cultural changes, war and peace, all working out God's purposes. And we can't, we can't examine them, we can't mark them down, we can't trace them. They're beyond us, incomprehensible. Or think of the, the way of God with individuals and how incomprehensible must appear in the outworking of God's purposes. Think of Joseph. There's Joseph. Joseph is the favourite son of Jacob. Everything's going well. He's got this nice coat. And he's his father's pet. Brothers turn against him. Life falls apart. He's sold into slavery. He gets on well in Potiphar's household. Given all kinds of responsibility. Things are on and up. And then, bang! He's betrayed by a wicked, scheming wife and ends up in the dungeon. See, his life is like a yo-yo. It's going up and down, up and down. Uh, again, in the dungeon, he's favoured because of his wisdom, given some responsibilities. Interprets dreams for the baker and the cupbearer. Cupbearer's released. He says, I'll remember you, Joseph. Promptly forgets Joseph. Joseph's languishing in prison. Eventually, he does remember him. Joseph's released. Again, he's on and up. He's brought to the, the second highest position of state. And life becomes a constant movement. Activity, relentless activity. As he prepares Egypt to be the grain store of the world. And saves thousands, millions perhaps, of people from starvation. And yet all incomprehensible. Think of Moses' life. Moses separated as a baby from his family. Educated in Pharaoh's house. Then, age 40, we often say, height of his powers. The height of his sense of wanting to do something really significant for his people. He is really motivated. What happens? One day he's out and he kills a slave driver. He has to flee from Egypt. So he's out there in the sticks. He's a farm laborer for 40 years. No one hears of, Joseph, of, of Moses. Then God appears to him. The age of 80, God gives him a, t 
task to do. Go and command Pharaoh to release my people uh, and send them uh, out to the promised land. Moses does what he's told. And you think, well, God could have done this just straight away. God is God. But God allows uh, Pharaoh to play cat and mouse with Moses. And it takes ten plagues until uh, Pharaoh releases the people. And they go out of Egypt. And then, once they're released, they they start behaving in the most rebellious and crazy way. Uh, Every obstacle, every challenge that they meet with, they say to Moses, Oh, this is dreadful. We want to go back to Egypt. It was so much better for us back in Egypt. And then eventually, when the time of wandering comes to an end and and, uh, a new generation are ready to go into the promised land, Moses isn't one of them. After all... All his endeavours, after all his usefulness, he looks out from Mount Nebo over the Jordan. How incomprehensible are the ways of God. God's great, you're not great, you can't understand him. Second, God doesn't need your advice. God does not need your advice Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? And the answer, of course, is no one has known the mind of the Lord. No one has ever been or ever could be his counsellor. But many people think that they actually should be. That they would like to give God some advice. Many people think that they could do better than God. Many people think that, well, if only God had tweaked things just a little bit in this area of my life, then things would be far, far better. God really has made a bit of a mess of this. And I think, you know, if things were just changed a bit, then they would be better for me. You know, if, oh, if I had a husband, or if I had a different job, or if X, Y, Z, if my, my gifts, which are so manifestly good, could be better used in the church, then things would be so much better. But God does not need your advice. He does not need us to counsel him on how he could think, how he could do things a little bit better. Again, you see this uh, worked out in the lives of of people. Uh, Paul could easily have complained that that, that God really uh, wasn't using his life in the best way. Of course, Paul didn't. Paul was humbled under God's hand. But many people in Paul's position would have. Uh, Paul, in so many ways, was, was gifted. Great mind, a great intellect. Uh, he was a man who inhabited two worlds, the Roman world and the Jewish world. He had a great training under Gamaliel. And yet, God allowed him to, to actually persecute the church. Give the church a hard time in uh, these early years. And then he's converted and he goes and he's got a very fruitful ministry, of course. Plants lots of churches. And people don't recognize him. In fact, he's continually having his authority challenged by these so-called super apostles. And then he's wrestling all the time with this mysterious ailment that he calls his thorn in the flesh. And when he prays to the Lord, the Lord doesn't take it from him. And Paul, of course... Uh, recognizes what God's doing and that God's grace is sufficient for him. 
I wonder if you would be tempted to have given God advice, (laughs) how God could maybe have worked out things just a little bit better, to get the church onto a better start than was happening. God doesn't need your advice. Thirdly, God doesn't owe you anything. Who has ever given to God that he should repay him? When we fail to see that God's ways and dealings with us are actually incomprehensible, that we can never really understand them or truly get them on this side of eternity, and when we, when we resent the way that God is working in our lives, you know, sometimes, sometimes the reason that we do that is from a sense that uh, we deserve better. Yeah? We've got an idea of having given service to God, and therefore that service has to count for something. Why does God not deal with me better after all these years I gave him as a Sunday school teacher, as an elder, doing my rounds of the district, all the rest of it? Why is life not turning out a little bit better for me? It's not fair. Where's the justice in it all? And when we, when we think like that, or when we say maybe of ourselves or somebody else, you know, and you hear it a lot, uh, no one deserves, you know, to go through that. The language of deserving is always questionable. Because we don't deserve anything from God's hand. Didn't Shakespeare get it right when Shakespeare said, give every man his desert and who'd escape a whipping? In other words, if everybody got what they deserved, it would be judgment. You don't deserve mercy. Mercy is a sovereign gift. No one deserves from God. And the whole doctrine of justification by faith is built on the premise that we have done nothing uh, that connects us with forgiveness other than sin. We're saved despite our woeful lives. And when we speak of deserving better, then we are really failing to acknowledge God's grace to us. It's a great verse in the hymn, uh, The Lord is King, uh, which goes, The Lord is King, who then shall dare resist his will, distrust his care, or murmur at his wise decrees and doubt his royal promises? Hey, that's a big lesson, isn't it, for all of us? A hard, hard lesson to, to learn and put into practice that God does know best. And just because we can't see it doesn't mean that his decrees are not wise. His wise decree is working out in our lives. You're not, and I'm not, the center of the universe. But God is. He's the center and soul of every sphere. And that's what the, the final part's all about for from him and through him and to him are all things. You know, you could, you could preach 10 sermons from that and still only be scratching the surface, but it's describing this 
mindset change, isn't it, that we started off with? Everything is from God. That's kind of straightforward enough. God is the creator of everything. He is the author of all life, of every creature. He designed this world. The world, the universe has the hallmark of God upon it. The stars, the planets, they are speaking with an inarticulate speech. The hand that made me is divine. Everything is crying out and pointing to God. They came from God. And they have their existence through him. Through him. For through him are all things. More particularly through the sun. It was all things were made for him and through him, Paul tells us. The sun, the son of God is the cosmic glue that keeps everything from falling apart. He upholds everything by the power of his word. He is guiding and governing all his creatures and all their actions. There is nothing in this universe that is, is a chance or a random act. And all things are to him. All things find their ultimate purpose in God. They are, they are directed towards God. And they're to be understood in relation to him. And as far as you and I are concerned, our purpose, as we all know from our catechism, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's a wonderful, wonderful way to begin a catechism, isn't it? To, to challenge people to reorganize their thinking to have a, a mindset change your purpose is not to be happy or to have an uncomplicated life free from all obstructions your purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him not the pleasures of the world but to enjoy him forever your purpose is to organize your life around the supreme being the creator of all things the Holy God, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for to Him are all things. And if your life isn't orientated around God, if it's orientated around some, some problem or some, something that you desire or something that's causing you anxiety, then you need to adjust your thinking so that God is back where He should be, at the center of all Wow, this is so, it's so deep, isn't it? Just as Paul says, who can, who can get under it? No one. But it's good, isn't it, to engage with it. And this comes, this, this worship comes at the end of this extended section of theology and doctrine. And that's always the way it should be. See, our, our doctrine and our worship should never be separated. You know, if you have worship which is separated from doctrine, what's going to happen eventually is that it'll become superficial. And ultimately, it'll be man-centered. Unless it's rooted in the scriptures. That's why it's always good to sing, you know, a hymn such as the, the Remembrance hymn we, we sang earlier on which is simply saturated with theology. 
where in praising God, we're meditating upon his attributes and his acts. And similarly, when we, when we think of doctrine, when, when we do theology, and, and that's, not, that's not just for the theology students, it's for every believer. Your calling is to, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in his holy place. You're to, to do theology. You're to think God's thoughts after him. And that doing of doctrine becomes an arid and a speculative thing unless it's also bound up with worship. You can't separate doctrine and worship. Worship and doctrine. And when we do that, when we're doing that properly, you know that the, the proper result is always God is great. God is enlarged in our thinking. We can't enlarge God, but our understanding becomes adjusted to his greatness. And we begin to be humbled. We begin to realize that we're actually not. Not that great after all. Not that important. Not that central to this universe. God is. And to him be the glory forever. Amen.